you can be turning to Mark chapter 16. As I mentioned this morning, we were this close to finishing our book today. In fact, it wasn't until yesterday afternoon, while Calvin was asleep, and I was at home, I really thought it through and decided if I want to give justice to the last verses of Mark, I really better break it up into two sermons. About these last verses of Mark, I need to make a quick preface about our text today. Most of your Bibles will be informing you that Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, are not in some of the earliest manuscripts. The Bible in your hands, as you probably all know, is a library of books, not one book, first published altogether as a written book in one place and time. Early church councils met and shared faith and we believe by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit agreed upon what books to canonize and to declare as the written word of God the Holy Scriptures. This was in the late 300s. The book of Mark then in its earliest manuscripts only went up to what we know as Mark 16 verse 8. Chapters and verses were also not in the original books. That's a whole other story. <laughs> However, other manuscripts perhaps a few almost as old as what we have in Mark, do include the verses we're studying today. There are many reasons to believe that Mark himself did not write the verses we're looking at today. I actually take that position that the verses that we are covering today were added by a later scribe. Perhaps, excuse the pun, but perhaps to flesh out <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension, and basically things that Matthew, Luke, and John all record for us. There are reasons for me to believe that Mark is not writing this. Among the greatest convincing evidence for me is that the manuscripts that do include the longer ending include notes written by the scribes stating this is an additional ending, <laughs> and so forth. Um, we see that the story ended a little weird, but it ended well last week, and the continuation is a bit of a non-sequitur. We, we see in the passage we're going to read today that Mary of Magdalene is kind of reintroduced, and she's differently than she has been introduced before when she was introduced three times last week. <clears throat> we also find Jesus referred to in this section, namely in verses 19 and 20, reverently as the Lord Jesus, or the Lord, which Mark has just referred to him as Jesus throughout the entire book. And in the original language, in these verses, there are 27 words that Mark has never used and appear only in this section. So I'll stop boring you with all that, but suffice it to say, simply because I agree or think that we are now reading another person's word does not, for me, disqualify this at all from the Scriptures. This is the inspired word of God. The accounts of old have preserved it for us, and we all agree that the Holy Spirit is the overarching, overarching author of the entire Bible, simply because somebody else wrote this in the book of Mark. I don't believe it does detriment or disagreement to the entire Bible with the theology it has. So let's dig into it together. Please stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word. We're going to read verses 9 through 15 today. So Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 9. It says, Now when he, that is Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week... He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. 
But when they believed, they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into the world, go into all the world, and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, Perhaps I'm a little narrow-minded, but it seems like I, I read a lot of Scripture, and I always see the Gospel. And I always see you beckoning us to repent from everything that hinders us from you. And Father, that you always want us to come and adore your Son, Jesus, to proclaim that he is alive, that he does rule and reign. So, Father, however this would transform our hearts today, we give ourselves freely to you. Holy Spirit, come and move among your people. Give us open ears and open hearts to receive your word today. And may it be giving us active faith, not dead faith. May we not look at these words and be astonished and then walk away as if it has not astonished us. But instead, move us to action, we pray. pray Father, I pray that you would remove me and that you would speak to all of us, so that we may all hear your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Maybe seated. I invite you to close your eyes right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to steal anything. Close your eyes. I want you to think of someone that you had the misfortune that you had to bury these last few years, somebody that you really love. And I want you to try to imagine the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that would come up in you if that person walked through these doors right now. What kind of thoughts, what kind of emotions would you have? Okay, open your eyes. (laughs) People... Don't just resurrect. Can we agree with that? You and I, we, we go to funerals or celebrations of life and memorial services. And there are reasons why, though we might try to be really hard to be happy, but there are reasons why we carry with us grief and sorrows. Because we understand that our loved one is gone, never again for us to see as long as we live on this earth. And I was thinking about this last week, if you are, happen to be a non-believer that doesn't believe in any afterlife, period, I imagine the sorrow is much deeper and more painful, <laughs> because you believe you will never, ever, ever again see your loved one walking, breathing, and living. I never thought about this growing up, whenever I would lose a family member, I was thinking of my grandfather, called him Papo. <laughs> And every time somebody died in, in, in my family, and we knew that they were saved, my parents could rightfully and truly console me. We will see your grandfather again. I hope and I pray and I believe that I'll also meet my nephew someday, who passed away after four months. I couldn't even lay eyes on him. Even so, 
I do not expect. In fact, I think I would be freaked out if my dead grandfather came to church today. I've had dreams, some of them nightmares, of him walking around again, but logic, reality, and science, and personal experience all tell me that he's not going to walk through those doors. I will never see him. Some of you who've just thought of your loved ones, perhaps some of you buried over the past few years, and you've imagined emotionally them walking around again, you, you imagine them back from the grave, some emotional response that you might have might be fearful because you saw them and you knew that they were dead. Another emotional response might be joyful because they're back, but is there not an overwhelming block? You could not really identify emotionally because over all of this, like me, you know that it just doesn't happen. <laughs> dead people don't resurrect and move around. C.S. Lewis has a term I've mentioned before that oftentimes we look at the Bible or any old account of creation, or excuse me, of ancient civilizations, and we can have chronological snobbery. <laughs> we, we simply assume that, that, that superstitions ruled the day and, and primitive technology meant that people were primitive in all manners, and that where they, they might fail as we read history, we believe we would succeed. We're snobbish about that. We ended our study last week on an account of discipleship failure. A few women had come to the tomb of Jesus in order to anoint him with spices, as they not had had the time or the space to prior, but also primarily because they wanted to be away from all the controversies surrounding Jesus. And when they came to the tomb, they encountered what many people even today say they encounter. You can go to any Christian bookstore, I'm sad to say, and see a book about and angelic encounters. People believe they come into contact with angels. And so that angel has some hard-to-believe facts to relay these women. We studied and read last week, the angel said, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We see that failure there. They fled from the tomb. They were trembling and astonished, implying fear, because it seized them. It made them incapable and paralyzed, responding to the orders of this angel. So much so they hadn't said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Why were they afraid? What were they afraid of, you might ask? Anything from the fact that they just encountered an angel to the fact that a rumor might be spreading to bring more controversy surrounding Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus was condemned as a heretic and an insurrectionist and executed as such. We know in the final chapters of Mark that we've been reading, Jesus' disciples are fleeing and hiding. Why? Because they don't want the death that Jesus has experienced. They follow him. Jesus has received persecution and execution for his beliefs and proclamations. So are these women disciples going to start saying that Jesus is alive? <laughs> Do they even believe if he is alive? Believing it or not, they are not ready to die like Jesus did. Nor do they want to attract the attention and the persecution that Jesus attracted. And lastly, they could be afraid to be thought of as hallucinators liars. 
Because, and here's why I brought up chronological snobbery, <laughs> there was not some sort of disposition in that day and age to be more susceptible to believe in resurrection. You're going to see that again and again today. You and I today, and the vast majority of people in that day and age, the day and age we're reading about, are all in agreement. People do not resurrect. That just doesn't happen. That goes against everything we see, hear, and believe. No one resurrects. So the idea that Jesus bodily resurrected was just as hard to believe and hard to overcome for that day as it is in this day. Let me say that again, and I'm going to hammer it as we study. The idea that Jesus bodily resurrected was just as hard to believe and hard to overcome for that day as it is in this day. We read verse 9, Now when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Whoever added to the book of Mark, or if it is Mark, did do a good job of picking up themes and patterns from the verses prior, because we see a pattern here that is going to persist. Among the women who left the tomb and kept their mouths shut was this Mary Magdalene, so Mark 16, verse 1 tells us. However, we are told that in order to combat the fear of the women, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And then she went and told. This is a direct response to verse 7 last week where the angels told the women to go and tell. <laughs> Mary went and told. Told who? Those who had been with them, with him. Interestingly enough, in Mark 3, when Mark relays to us who the disciples are, or I should say who the twelve apostles are, in Mark 3.14 says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. So those who had been with Jesus, the disciples, when they heard Mary, when they heard that Jesus was alive and he had been seen by Mary Magdalene, they would not believe it. <clears throat> the pattern continues. After these things... He appeared, that is Jesus, in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Same words, <clears throat> he appeared, same routine. Those who saw him went and told. Because the mission of the Christian, I said this last week, is to go and tell <laughs> about a who, not a what. We're told to be primarily tellers of who, that is Jesus is risen, Jesus is Lord Jesus, is Savior Jesus, is God. And our primary focus is not on a what to be reconciled to God, but we have a who. His name is Jesus. So Mark covers here what many believe, what Russ read earlier, the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. In fact, perhaps we have an answer from this text about the other text. We are told that Jesus was in, quote, another form. This is why the two on the road to Emmaus also may have not known who Jesus is. But again, we're shown the failure 
on the part of the disciples. These disciples, who since Mark 15.40 have all left Jesus and fled, Peter denied him, and none of them are believing that he is risen. Why? Because dead people don't rise. (laughs) And in fact, what's interesting is that Mark tells us in chapters 8 through 10 of at least three occasions where Jesus has emphatically prophesied that he would be betrayed, rejected, mocked, murdered, and each time he has said, I will rise again. And then Jesus even prophesied to the disciples who would leave him, in Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away, and he follows that up, but after I am raised up, and there's another prediction of resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. But, despite all these prophecies, the disciples do not believe their ears when they start hearing accounts of his resurrection. Mary Magdalene's testimony doesn't convince them. These two people on the road to Emmaus do not convince them. Why? It's the same reason if I told you, in the most sincerest, in the most genuine way I can, that George Washington is living down the road. I have a feeling you don't believe me. Because George Washington has lived and died. Dead people don't, res- don't rise, it just doesn't happen. So we have no place to even think about judging these disciples for ignoring Jesus' past predictions and not believing their ears from at least three people who have so, so far seen Jesus resurrected. Well, what would happen if Jesus himself shows up and tells them? What's most interesting to me is that Jesus, who has resurrected from the grave and obviously has power, it's interesting that Jesus does not first go to his twelve or eleven disciples, but rather he has been approaching them through women and through other unnamed, so we can assume less prominent, disciples to try to get their attention. The disciples, though, to this point are in utter disbelief, because we know, and you're tired of hearing it, Dead people don't rise again. Mark 16, 14, the first part of that verse says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. I'm going to pause right there because the speed of this verse passes over the doubt that is still in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. I want to take you over to Luke's account of this real quick. To show you that even in the presence of Jesus' resurrected body, the disciples still don't believe. In Luke, right after the road to Emmaus incident, we find that in their disbelief about the Emmaus incident, they're still talking about that. In Luke 24, verse 36, says, And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And this is interesting, because that is, as it is written, it seems Jesus stands among them. He just appeared. We're not told, we're not to assume that the door creaked open, Jesus snuck in. This is why the disciples thought they saw a spirit. Now some of you say, well, I guess they have chronological snobbery, because maybe I wouldn't have made that assumption. Interestingly enough, I could show you TV shows and books and people in our day and age who are quicker to believe in spirits than they are in resurrected bodies. There are people out there who believe in spirits and would even 
call themselves religious, as in they don't follow any sort of moral faith or any holy books or, or any other religions, but they do believe in spirits, as in, well, I believe my dead relative is haunting that house to this day, or I saw so-and-so and I know he's dead, but it must be his spirit. The disciples are still in disbelief at the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and are quicker to think and assume and maybe reluctantly accept that they are in the presence of a spirit. <clears throat> Luke 24, verse 38 says, And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Still unbelief in their hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So now Jesus is breaking their hypothesis and their assumption on he being merely a spirit. See, we all know and believe, or Jesus just told us, that spirits don't have flesh, they're disembodied, they're not tangible. So Jesus is saying, touch me, I'm real, I'm solid, and I'm back. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they get a little excited at the possibility. I don't know about your dad, but my dad always told me, if it's too good to be true, it's likely too good to be true. So they don't want to give in to their joy. They don't want to accept it. So Jesus gives them a final piece of evidence. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. I heard one pastor say, why didn't he take bacon? <laughs> he resurrected now. Anyways. Spirits don't get hungry, can't eat. Though some believe spirits can physically move things around, why would a disembodied spirit that presumably doesn't need nourishment or sustenance want to eat? Jesus has said, touch me, I'm solid, made of flesh, feed me, I am a real person, I need to eat. So he proves to them wholeheartedly that he is real, that he is back, that he is alive, that he is resurrected. Now, many of you might be jealous. <laughs> you want to be here. Some of you, maybe if you're not believers, or if you're doubting, there's a shred of you who wants to be here. Even if it's just to please other people, you would like to be convinced. You just can't get over this fact right here, though. I mean, this is a big hurdle. And you're in the company of the 11 disciples who have been with Jesus bodily for three years up to this point. They weren't convinced after being preached to by people who saw Jesus face to face. And so you're a little jealous. You, you want to be here. And sure, if you got to touch Jesus, see him eat, if he walked through these doors back here, and if it was a big, emotional, physically convincing and convicting encounter, you would believe. You would believe. No doubt about it. What's interesting, though, is what Jesus does after he reveals himself in this way in this vulnerable, exhaustive way of proving to the disciples that he truly is resurrected. And I can just say, maybe some of you would agree with me. I think this was a necessary proof in my mind. Because again, we can all agree that resurrection doesn't happen. It's not natural, it's not normal. That's why it's supernatural and abnormal, and it's a miracle. And we think it would be a courtesy a necessity of Jesus to be this exhaustive in his proof. But Mark 16, 14 tells us 
in its entirety after he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Jesus rebukes his disciples for this because they had unbelief and hard hearts. If we look at this scripture strictly in a literature manner, it's a common theme throughout all the gospel accounts that the disciples are the ones closest to Jesus and they are also the ones who are always failing. (laughs) So there's no surprise here. They didn't do what Jesus wanted them to do. We'll come back to that. But just looking at the scripture for what it's worth, I said, what? (laughs) Why do they need to be rebuked? (laughs) We all agree that resurrection doesn't happen every day. And some of you, this is perhaps what you're waiting for. You say, I need this proof. You know what's even more shocking of a verse? I brought this up a few weeks ago, so I'll cover it quickly. But Matthew, in the ending of his gospel account, tells us, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So the eleven are doing, this is presumably after this encounter the disciples have. They're in Galilee, that's where Jesus told them to go. And so, and when they, presumably the eleven, saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. (laughs) Still unbelief. Still the doubting. These are the disciples that touched Jesus. They watched Jesus chow down on some fish. But they still doubted. And so what Jesus is getting at here in Mark 16, 14 is something that should be obvious to us, but maybe we always don't think about it. And that is unbelief and hard hearts are sin. (laughs) It needs rebuking. And Jesus points to a huge theme in the Bible. Listen to this. He rebuked them because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. What did those who saw Jesus after he arose, what did they do? They went and told What Jesus sees is all that is necessary to convict hearts of his existence, of his resurrection, is the simple and true proclamation that he is. The word of God is what Jesus believes is all that is necessary for you and I to know that he is alive. What I'm doing here. It is now anybody's opportunity in this room to believe what's being said. We find that this is the case because the pattern that I've told you about is about to continue, and it really amazes me. The pattern that I've been talking about, Mary is afraid from what the angel said about Jesus. She does not go and tell, but then Jesus appears, and so she went and told. The disciples don't believe. Jesus appears to do disciples on the road to Emmaus. They went and told. The disciples don't believe. Jesus has shown up to the disciples, rebukes them for their unbelief. Guess what he's about to tell them to do next? And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I read this and I said, What, Jesus? Have you been paying attention? (laughs) You're, You're telling this to the people who have been told by two other parties that you've appeared to. And that you've told these two other parties to come to these disciples. 
And these disciples have responded in unbelief. So then you tell the hard-hearted, unbelieving disciples to go and proclaim. And here's what I think. Some of you don't think it should be this easy. (laughs) Some of you think there should be at least ten verses between 14 and 15. Like, the disciples need some time to really think through their doubts. They, they need some time to really accept the fact that Jesus is alive. He's, Lord, we need some time to weigh the evidence. Is Jesus alive? Can we just have time? I mean, is it really a matter of words given and words received? And let's move on. It is. It is. I think I might break a little bit. I could be wrong, but I think I might break from what I call cultural, traditional Christianity in many ways when I say this. But hear me out. All you veteran Christians should sound, this should sound familiar. Faith comes by hearing. What does that mean? This means that you don't need, that word need, very important, talking about necessities. You don't need to say a sinner's prayer. You don't need hoops to go through. You don't need to be baptized. We'll talk about that next week. You don't need to contemplate meditate and complicate the simple truth here. Why do I say that? Why do I have the gumption to fly in the face of a bajillion church traditions and belief? Because I am told, and I see here, that faith comes by hearing. And I love the fact that Jesus does not give one second to these disciples before he is commissioning them. We're told again in Matthew 28:17 that some still doubted. And then even in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus again has the audacity to commission these hard-hearted, doubting, unbelieving disciples to go and proclaim. Why? Because we're sinners, justified by God's grace. And where you and I are faithless, He is faithful. Where you and I doubt, and I mean this in a humble, reverent way, but could it be that Jesus believes in us whenever we doubt? I don't mean that in that he's looking for hope in us or that he rests his hope on us. And I don't even mean that he needs us, but wherever he sees the faith of a mustard seed, he sees where he, that is Jesus, can be faithful to complete a good work in us. And though the disciples doubt and face unbelief, he commissions them to go and proclaim. This is where I'm going to end today, and as we come to our end, there are three things I think we can take away with us. First of all, know that this book is true, and that it sympathizes with our current day's biggest problems with Jesus, namely, his resurrection. We just read seven verses today, and six of those verses had unbelieving disciples. And the way that Matthew tells us the story seems to imply that Jesus is commissioning these disciples, among which there is still doubt. Two of the biggest skepticisms directed towards Christianity is the resurrection of the Christ, because people don't resurrect, and the validity, truthfulness, honesty of scriptures. I told you last week about how awkward it was that it was women at the tomb because women aren't given the floor in courts, but that was the reality of what happened, so they wrote it down. This week, don't you see the honesty and the reality of life here? 
that, yeah, I too wouldn't have believed Jesus resurrected if people showed me, told me, I mean. And if we're supposed to believe that this is a book of ancient myths and superheroes, I am sorry, but the superheroes stink. (laughs) I like it best what Peter says, who denied Jesus and struggled to believe with the others today. I like what he writes in his epistle. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witness, eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, another disciple, opens up his epistle saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Do you hear that these are real people talking about real events? The authors of the Bible make no apology for their failings, but they also make no apology for the things that are hard to believe. Because they are human beings who encountered God in the flesh when he entered into human history. Second thing we can take away today is that we need to combat unbelief. The Bible is honest about the unbelief of the disciples, but is also honest about what Jesus thinks about unbelief. This application is twofold. Firstly, it means that we believers have a hope for those loved ones of ours who are wayward. They are battling unbelief. And we find hope in the fact that the disciples themselves were hard-hearted unbelievers who upon rebuke from the Lord Jesus became believers and proclaimers. And secondly, if you have been a Christian struggling with doubt or if you're not a Christian and an unbeliever, this means... This is a beckoning to repentance. See, unlike the disciples who didn't believe within hours after its occurrence, we like to bring our three-pound fallen brain against 2,000 years of crowds and crowds of believers who testify to the risen Lord. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning. He is Lord. He is King. He comes too, not like a secular king, tyrannically demanding servitude. But Jesus says in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Sounds kind of familiar. You are my friends. That also sounds familiar. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And that's the Jesus that beckons you to believe in him, to surrender your doubts to him. That's the Jesus who lives, rules, and reigns in what he demands of his disciples. So lastly, I bring you good news that it is the power and the word of God 
That faith comes by hearing. See, some of you, if you've been beckoned to repentance and you wonder, what now must I do? (laughs) Simply receive. Start there. See, faith comes by hearing. And now don't hear me wrong. Simply receiving the word of God and simply understanding that it is faith in the word that has moved anyone from death to life or from sin to forgiven doesn't mean that the transformation does not take place. Another testament to the fact that Jesus is alive is the fact that these scared disciples that are hiding, Jesus shows up to them and immediately Jesus tells them to repent and then to go and proclaim a testament to the fact that they are doing it means that God is alive, that he does show up, that he rebukes their unbelief in one breath and tells them to go in the next breath, and that when all of them left and fled and they now go and tell, and they end up dying for the proclamation of what? Of Jesus being alive. Why would 11 men who were once cowards in hiding suddenly be willing to die for the sake of Jesus and his gospel? Because Jesus is alive. That's the power of the word of God. And if you receive the word of God today, you receive not only eternal life, but life abundantly. Not only that, no matter where you are in life, a Christian or a convert, I pray today, if you were an unbeliever, if you accept the word of God has power, then that gives power to your prayers. It gives power to the Bible. Because whenever you hear God's voice, and if you believe in its power, You will respond to what it says. Three things. The Bible is true. Unbelief needs to be repented of. And it can be by the very word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that as a pastor sometimes I'm Worried about producing in my sermons. Worried about, well, they need practical applications. They need this. They need that. So it's a comfort to me today that your word has power. That your word does the work. That your word are seeds planted. So, Father, I guess more than anything, I pray that people would have seen you today. As the disciples saw you. And while still battling their unbelief, you saw the faith of the mustard seed in their souls and said, Go and proclaim, and they did. Because your word has power. So, how practical is that for us? Why, if we just look into your word, tell us to go and do something, we ought to go and do it. Father, if we pray to you, and then if we're silent, and in the silence we hear that still small voice, well, we believe that voice has power. We better respond to it. So, Father, that is my hope today, that as each and every person has come here today, that they would leave deciding here and now, by your grace, that they will respond to your word, because it has power and will not return to you void. Father, I pray that many would take hope today, that they have loved ones I know that are battling unbelief. And it looks like that you've been defeated, because they don't believe. I pray that you would remind them today that your word has power. So, Father, would you bring comfort, would you bring conviction? Most of all, would you draw us closer with your love? Because we are your friends. May we do what you command of us, to love one another as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.